Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, new data from a survey shows that the Green Party is gaining momentum. And the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls has issued its final report. Is it enough to take the country forward? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Uh, New data from Abacus suggests that the Green Party is having a momentum with more Canadians looking to them as an option. What is it behind the surge of the Green Party? Is it we are all now more environmentally conscious, which I think we are. So is it the policy of the Greens or is it anything but the ones we normally vote for? Anything but the obvious? Uh, anything about the, anything but the uh, typical mainstream parties. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University, and he is with us now. Henry, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Oh, glad to be with you. We, we've discussed this, I think, before uh, on this show, perhaps even with you. Is the Green Party, is it about the policy? I mean, we all are becoming more environmentally conscious as uh, as time moves forward is it is it that or is it uh we're looking for another op- we're looking for another option we're looking uh we're looking for a protest vote well i there's part of that latter but i think it is uh it it's a case of where the green party uh essentially uh has been you know making the case for that we need to have stronger environmental policies warrant war- you know warning us about climate change and it's taken a while for people to you know for it to sink in but i think it is starting to sink in more and more to people uh partially at this time we've gone through a period well we had bad wildfires uh last fall uh, we've had these flooding uh, that has occurred, and of course, one of the arguments about climate change is that it will have will have worse and worse weather. We'll have more dramatic dry periods. We'll have very dr- more dramatic wet periods. So there's the flooding, and so I think this is starting to confirm, you know, their sort of view. People are beginning to, you know, pay attention, particularly younger people, uh, or to the to the arguments of of uh, people who are uh, arguing we've got to do something about uh, about the climate change and uh, it's 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 up to us to do stuff and to do it now be, uh, before things get worse so i think uh, i think that's probably what's happening right right now uh as you said a lot of younger voters uh, a lot of millennials uh skewing in this uh survey um proving that lots are interested but is that enough to sway a vote well, I the bigger problem for the uh, for the for the Greens are going to be uh, is that uh, the di- type of dynamic we have in an election. We have basically two broad groups uh, among voters. We have a conservative group, which is a minority, but they are pretty un- united. Now I know there is a, an offshoot that. Uh, uh, on the People's Party, but I, I doesn't look like it's doing much of anything right now. Uh, but the on the on the progressive side, you have a choice of sort of three three choices. You have a slightly you know left to center with the liberals. You go a little farther left. You have the NDP, and then you have the Greens. And you have people who are ju- who can jump among those three parties as as things happen. So there's a lot of volatility. And what tends to happen in the campaign is people on the progressive side decide uh, late, you know, late in the campaign who the, who they're really going to want to challenge the conservatives. The conservatives really have no strong competition. Uh, they will likely hold their vote, 
but they uh, they really benefit when the progressive side remains split. But what happens is people worry about that on the progressive side. So they go basically to the liberals traditionally, although we know back in 2011 they went to the NDP and made the NDP official opposition. So we'll... And now, to keep the green vote, I mean, a lot, a lot of these people, you know, might agree with the Greens. I'd love to have the Greens in, but as they get into the campaign, they're going to start worrying. I really don't like uh, the Conservatives, and particularly here in Ontario, the numbers, the negative numbers toward, towards the Premier, is extremely high and extremely intense, and I think it's going to get worse and worse. And so that is really going to focus the minds of the people who are not conservative voters into selecting one of the parties. And uh, it's going to be tough for the Greens, I think, to hold their vote, even though they may still have more popular vote in the election than they have traditionally. But again, are they going to actually win a seat? That I'm still up in the air about that one. Uh, you know, it's. I guess we try to label and characterize or put groups or people in, 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 in silos so we can better identify them and understand what's going on. Um, you know, in past politics, whether it's in Ontario, uh, a good example of that, we saw the Liberals keep moving farther and farther to the left to sort of head off the NDP uh, at, at the pass. I had the leader of the Ontario Green on and I was asking where he fits or where they fit in the spectrum of all of this and he refused to go down that road uh, Henry mm-hmm. he basically said you know uh, the left and right thing is old school politics right and he said you know we've got some uh, policy that conservatives would be interested we got some policy that that uh, that uh, liberals would be interested in oh, is this is this a new way of doing something as opposed to again just assuming that well you know the liberals are are here then the NDP are a little farther left and then the greens are even farther left than that because he was trying to sort of he, he was trying to, to 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 get us off that track and to look at each each uh, issue individually well first of all he's a very capable leader i've yeah. met him and i've heard him face to face and i'm very impressed with him and of course to of course uh May, the leader of the federal Greens, she's, again, I've had meetings with her, and she, she's very impressive, and she's having, an, I think, an impact on, on the population. But they certainly, they, the Greens know that when they get into a campaign, that peop, their, some of their supporters are going to drift back, drift to the NDP, and some are going to drift to the Liberals. And in the last election, Trudeau was able to pull a lot of people who might have at one point been green voters, but he pulled them over to him, and, and, and it was very important in, in getting his majority. Now, I, uh, I would talk about these regressive people or these, these three different parties by saying, how much change will they bring to uh, our society how, society? how much change will they demand of people to deal with problems? And I th- to me, that is what the left and uh, the left, the right and left continuum is. The people who are on the right generally, you know, they don't want to have a lot of change. They are generally older. They're generally saying, yeah, I, I basically, I know, you know, I know how things have worked in the past. I don't want to try anything new too much. When you get on the other side of the spectrum, you go for more and more change. The liberals will give you some change. The NDP, I think it will get demand a bit more from you from the voters, and I think the Greens will de- demand a, mi- a bit more there. So I think that is it. And, uh, you know, with the rise of the Green vote, I think, do think people are willing to accept more change now, that they are going to have to do things that are maybe inconvenient for them uh, because of what, we, what, what they see happening to the climate. Uh, again, will that be enough to 
keep them there and win some seats that uh, we'll just have to see but you know i won't believe it until i actually see it because i know i'm well aware of the dynamic that normally happens in an election campaign but mm. you know they may surprise me uh they, they certainly may surprise me and people might say oh i want kathleen i mean people will have to think that you know i really want kathleen Wynn to be either the opposition leader or the or the uh, prime minister and uh um you know uh, you know if, I don't know if they're going to get that far, but I mean the, uh, but I, I think we'll just have the. I, I I just have to wait and see. But I mean, if you're a green voter, you have to be happy. I do know there are NDP people who are have been defecting over to the Greens. Uh, how many of them will, uh, you know, will stay there and go over? It's unclear. Certainly, the drop in the liberal support. They have lost a lot of those green voters that they had four years ago, and they're part of the people who've gone over to the to the greens and uh, but are they going to be you know will, willing to stand with the greens uh when the when it comes time to vote that's the big question do we know enough about the greens is the party brand too specific we know obviously they're environmental health uh, heavy but do we know anything else that they're going to do yeah see and that's the thing people always worry about okay you've got that's a big that's an important issue but where do they stand on all sorts of other issues uh that interest people uh whether it's, I mean, health is always a big one. The economy is a big one. Those are those have been the two big issues. And where exactly do the Greens stand on uh, on those two issues? And a lot of people, you know, are not really sure. And that's why they tend to, I think, to drift over to uh, generally over to the liberals or to the, or, or to the conservatives. Do the is that the Greens' biggest challenge is to be a party beyond green, beyond the environment? It's uh, you know the environment's uh, of course uh, top of mind for people, but as you said, kitchen table issues are the economy, health, education, that sort of thing. That's right. I think they have to convince people they're just more than a one-issue party. That is that has been a big problem. And now it also affects others. Well, we've seen what happened to the NDP just on Friday. They know, even before this poll came out, and some of the other surveys have shown some of this uh, leading up to this, is that some of, there has been leakage from the NDP party over to the Greens. And uh, so it's not perhaps all that surprising that on Friday, Jagmeet Singh uh, released a very big uh, change for the environment type of uh, program on Friday because he, he has been losing people to the to the Greens and he's really worried about losing that momentum. So, uh, you know, so the, there, there will be challenges to the Green. And of course, the, the NDP would say, hey, not only will we, are we going to be strong on the environment, but we'll be we have other issues that we're strong on, and particularly health care. They're going to talk about pharmacare uh, and some other issues. And so, uh, the, the Greens have to think about that. What are they going to do? What are they, And their big problem is they have a lot of people in there who go across the, the traditional left-right spectrum, if we think of from, you know, yeah. as it is traditional. And so, I mean, you know, Schreier himself was, a, you know, the, the Ontario leader was a businessman. Mm -hmm. uh, so he, you know, you'd look at him and listen to him. If you didn't hear him talking about the environment, say, well, this guy would be a progressive conservative. Hmm. <laughs> and, and there's going to be people all, you know, uh, uh, right around, uh, right along that economic dimension who, who support the Greens. But and, at the end of the day, if, because, and we've talked about this before, uh, one of the major pillars of the liberal campaign is the environment. They're hammering away and hammering yeah. away out of it. But if you're an environmentalist, 
Why wouldn't you just vote green? It seems to me, and you you point the same thing out with Jagmeet Singh. He's right. you know, is the strategy for these parties to try to out green the green, or perhaps point to what the greens have not talked about and expose where they are on other policy? Well, I think like I mean, the liberal is your sort of your full your your full service party. Uh, you know, they're like a big supermarket. They want to be strong in the green section, but they also got a lot of other stuff they say they're strong in too. Uh, the NDP a little less so, but they still they have policies in different areas as well. Certainly, they dif- differ from the uh, from the liberals on on economic policies. Um, so, you know, they're sort of relatively full service uh, gr- your grocery store, but the. The the greens, as I said, don't you know they don't really you know I re- I really wouldn't know where the where the greens are going to come down on uh, you know interventions in the economy and uh, what do they think about health care and pharmacare I don't I don't really know where they stand on issues like that and people I think in the campaign people are going to want to know that. What does this say about the NDP? Because, my goodness, Henry, we've seen lots of, you know, uh, moments of, of uh, brilliance, and all of a sudden it looks like they're going to they're gonna mount a challenge, and then it just falls by the wayside. And if you look at the performance over the last couple of decades, I mean, again, there's been, there's been moments of, oh, here we go, but, but then we end up in the same place. W- where do you think they are with all of this? Uh, is it to the point where... You know, it's just too, it's just a little bit too much socialism there for Canadians. I mean, at the end of the day, why are they losing ground? Well, in the end, in the NDP, and this is true, I think, for social democratic parties in, in other countries, and, include, and even though the Democratic Party in the U.S. is not a social democratic party, has these sort of same sort of situation. It's made up half of the people are are people who are very much concerned with uh, non-economic issues they're very concerned with the uh, with the environment and sort of what the what we might call sort of new issues at the same time it has a working class base and that that is the NDP and all social democratic parties problems is they they have to put bring together you know the working people who have to worry about you know making that paycheck go extend you know uh, till the next paycheck, and they're living hand to mouth. And when they think, you know, when people talk about the environment, they say, "Oh my God, it's going to cost me money, and I can't, I can't live on what I'm making now." And then you've got the other half of the party, and a lot of young people and well-educated people who are drifting to the, the Social Democratic Party, who who are oftentimes feel, you know, feeling a little more secure economically, rightly or wrongly, and then they're willing to say, "Oh no, no, we've got to make these some big changes now on the environment because uh, you know, 20 years from now things are going to be really, really bad if we don't." So, the so the NDP has that real problem. The only person who was able to bridge that of course, uh, was Jack Layton. And, of course, uh, unfortunately for the NDP and for him and, and then probably for Canada, he, he passed away right after the 2011 election. But it's been very difficult for NDP leaders um, at, the, at the federal level to, to hold those two parts of the party together and to attract people who are, you know, environmentally conscious as well as the people who want, uh, you know, the ordinary uh, working class uh, family to be taken care of. And they... They've those two groups, you know, view view uh, the challenges of life differently, and that's that is a very difficult problem. And I haven't seen. I mean, I don't know how well Jagmeet Singh is going to do this, but if he, he may do it eventually, but he's he's not doing it very well right now, unfortunately. 
you know, uh, whenever we have or we're discussing, I'm discussing this issue with with experts, and especially in regard to the NDP, which I I think has just been on a holding pattern since Jack Layton passed away. Right. right. Um, but you know, how long can you keep looking in the rearview mirror at Jack Layton? Is Jack Layton the only thing that could have saved this party? I mean, come on. Well, I'm I'm just saying, leader. It's very difficult to be the leader of an NDP. Uh, and he was unusual. I mean, he was the only one who ever made the He was mainstream. He really was an NDP. He was more mainstream. And that's what, they're going, that's what they're going to have to do if they want to get elected. Can they get there? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, he had great municipal experience. And I, I really believe that the best party leaders and politicians at the federal and provincial level are those who have a you know, good experience at the municipal level, because that's, that's where you deal with people's problems. You really get to know people uh, in their day-to-day lives and, and what, what, they, what they really need. And you need to you know, be able to be on the same, same pay, uh, wavelength that, that they are. And Jack Layton was like that. He was deeply immersed in, in local politics for a very long period of time, and that served him in good stead. And he knew how to bring those, those two groups together. So he was a very special person, I think. Now, the, the NDP at the federal level doesn't seem to have anybody like that. Jagmeet Singh, I think, uh, probably went too early to, to get this job. Like He, he never was a, 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 you know, a, 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 a municipal politician. Uh, the one time he ran before he was leader for the for the federal legislature for for the House of Commons, he lost. So he didn't really have, in terms of his experience, yeah, yeah. a very good uh, a very good preparation. And again, Jagmeet's a person that I know very well, and I have very you know how he's had good relations with him. I'm very impressed with him. Mm. But he he didn't he he was lacking a lot of experience that you would like to have in a federal party leader. I mean, he had never sat in the House of Commons and. He, he he didn't have that feel. He he was I think coming into his own on provincial issues, uh, and I think he and Andrea Horvath together would have been very uh, dynamite in the last provincial election together because I think they really complement each other. But when he went off on his own federally, he was like a fish out of water, and he was yeah. he was struggling with issues. You could just see him struggle as issues would come up. He would have to struggle with them, and then of course when you deal with the environment, for example. He had then had to deal with two NDP governments out west who had an entirely different view of of environmental issues. He had the NDP premier of of, uh, Notley, of Alberta, who's trying to sell her oil at higher prices. And then he had the NDP, you know, the government, provincial government, who was against pipelines going through British Columbia. And boy, that was a nightmare for him. Henry Jasek has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. New data from Abacus suggests that the Green Party is gaining momentum. Henry, thanks so much for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Okay, and we'll see what happens. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The chief commissioner of the inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women told survivors today uh, this at the uh, at the closing ceremonies of this inquiry that they have started to rewrite Canadian history, saying the tragedy is a direct result of persistent and deliberate pattern of systematic racial and gendered human and indigenous rights violations and abuses. To talk more about all of this, Don Martin Hill is with us, Associate Professor Paul R. McPherson, Chair in Indigenous Studies at McMaster University, and on the line with us now. Don, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Uh, Have started to rewrite Canadian history. How is this moment different? 
Well, um, I think it's a watershed moment in terms of, you know, shining a light on Indigenous women's experience in this country. I mean, I've been teaching um, about it since 1992 at McMaster. And that was always the way we presented information was, you know, if you look at the definition of genocide and if you look at, you know, the removal of children, um, destruction in whole or part based on race, et cetera, and we fit all of the five areas um, that they outline. So it's not news to those of us who are um, doing research, knowing what was happening uh, early on with uh, the Picton case. Um, and and looking at Dr. Bev Jacobs, who's also Mohawk, um, advocacy through the United Nations, you know, to try to get this um, issue where families were missing their daughters, their mothers, their aunties, and trying to seek uh, justice and were denied over and over and over again, right up until 2019. If you look at the Cindy Gladue case, and I, I really encourage if you don't want to read everything, just look it up. You, you know, you have the world at your fingertips. And that case alone, um, how she was treated, how she was presented in media, um, how her body was um, presented to the court, which was horrific, that, that just wouldn't happen if you were um, not an Indigenous woman. So it's a really important moment for, for us and for two spirits. Um, community who has been a, a, a target from the days colonial agencies showed up with their missionaries and targeted some of our most sacred people um, that were very important to our, our culture um, became maligned and denigrated. So it, it's, it's a very important day for them too, I think. Don, is this about uh, who murdered, who victimized these women, or is it about how this process was handled, how they were investigated? It's all of the above. I mean, it's. I think what the report does is it sheds light on the systematic discrimination we face, whether it's um, with courts. Um, I've been in situations uh, trying to get justice um, here in Canada for a sexual assault, and let's just say it went horribly wrong. Um, and and that wasn't even a taste of what many of these families who lost. Um, uh, their family members, like Tashina General here from Six Nations, she was so maligned by the media. Um, it, it was, it's, it's like you're being victimized every day that they're, you know, pressing down on you that you're this or you're that, and they're labeling you. Um, that it, it's, it's all a form of violation. So I think the report tries to shed light on the re- responsibility education institutions have. The courts, we need to, to look at why we're denied justice, whether it was, you know, recent cases uh, where people, if you kill an Indigenous person, you're not going to go to jail. It's highly unlikely. So can- Canadians, I think, are becoming aware that there's systematic injustices, and this sheds the light on that. So we don't want to get caught up in um, pointing fingers at who, when, and where. The fact is women, are women, go missing and are murdered. Uh, at sometimes 10 times the rate of that of non-Indigenous people. And, and it, nobody gets justice. Is it so because, it, it. is it because, you know, and, and excuse my ignorance here, but is it because 
um, they're being victimized within their own community, and that community is not thought of equally, that this is all just being ignored or, or, or shoved off to the back burner? Is that what it is? Yeah. If you look at the earliest writings, Morgan's writings, um, I don't know, they're like 1600s, 1500s, how he wrote about Iroquois women, um, it was pretty, pretty bad. And, and that theme of us being promiscuous and because we had sexual freedoms that Canadians now enjoy, but we had them way before uh, Europeans did. So when they met our cultures, they were shocked at the power that especially Haudenosaunee women had. And they worked diligently to undermine our female leaders, to undermine our matrilineal culture by forcing us to identify through our fathers, which we still don't. We still keep our matrilineal identities. It was a systematic attack on everything that was Haudenosaunee. And that's had a, you know, a lasting impact on communities who... You know, you two, three generations of residential schools or yeah. the 60 scoop. I mean, my mother fleed um, Six Nations with us because we were they were trying to get us from her. Um, so she moved to Buffalo like many Haudenosaunee women went to these border towns fleeing um, the abduction of their children through CAS. And, and so people are dislocated from their culture. Uh, we've adopted some of the misogynist, as was pointed out today, uh, views um, and, and the denigration of women. So yes, our communities are impacted by that. But large, the larger picture is we are not valued. We're not written about in a positive way. My daughter uh, at university at McMaster said, you know, when I Google Native women or Indigenous women, all I get is rape, murder, and, and poverty. There's not a single story of a contribution that all these amazing women she knows are making to health to wellness across the country or leadership so that the media tends to dehumanize us Mm -hmm. and and you got hollywood you know with their 2000 films that dehumanized us over and over again where you can watch tv today where john wayne is killing an indian woman and then laughing about it so that's still uh, uh, in the consciousness and subconscious of most um, Canadians. I went to South Africa, and they have all seen those Hollywood films. Yeah. And so they adopted those ideas. So it's, it's, a, it's a scourge that needs to be erased, and we need to re, reboot the way in which our women have contributed to shaping the Canadian economy through the fur trade. There would be no uh, economy had the women not stepped up and been able to assist in the fur trade. And all of that has been ignored, and they just look at a deficit model, which I believe was raised by the commissioner. Mm. Uh, On a side note, you were talking about the United States. How have they handled this situation? Have they done it differently than Canada? Is the same issues that are uh, uh, troubling the Indigenous community up here the same as down there? Yes. My son is uh, over there. His father is from the U.S. And at Standing Rock, um, what happened, so much happened at at Standing Rock over the months. And one of the things was a lot of our women talking about the missing and murdered Indigenous women's movement and the red dress movement. And and it resonated. And since then, it's just exploded in the U.S. um, where it's now on CNN and there's congresswomen pushing for bills. And my son's over there now um, promoting and 
um, they're doing protests and marches uh, to to uh, start raising awareness around uh, missing and murdered women in the U.S. side. And just what struck me, um, I guess, looking at what Bev has been through uh, all these years, trying to raise awareness during the Picton um, horrors. And, and and I remember a CBC um, radio arguing about whether or not they were going to uh, talk about Picton because it was upsetting, you know, people. And that was like my first indication of how backwards um, Canada can be at times. Whereas in the U.S., they don't tend to try to politely remove themselves from uncomfortable conversations. They, It's out there. And you've got a movie now called Wind River addressing that issue, the man camps that come along with these oil companies. There was these two young Apache girls who were telling the camp at Standing Rock, you know, how their their sister was nearly abducted and how this is in broad daylight because they have like 2,000 men in an oil field with no, they're kind of let loose yeah. in the local yeah. First Nations community. And it's the same here. But I just see such a, they're, they've done more in, in two years to bring this awareness in Congress and so forth. And it took many women on the ground really advocating and working day and night to try to raise this issue, whether it was Idle No More. And it, it, it just took so long for them to even say, okay, we'll do an inquiry. So there's, there's a, a, a sense of I don't understand what it is. They don't want to know the truth. And then we do these commissions and then they might act on one or two and then it, it all goes away and they feel like, okay, we dealt with it. That's our fear. Um, we need real change on the ground as well as in our courts and our policing. We need those cases to be solved and we need people who have murdered our women to see justice. That's going to stop. But right now, if you kill an indigenous woman, your chances of ever seeing prison time are a lot less than if you kill a, anyone else. So it, it, it's like they've raised awareness and people are like, oh, okay, so I'm going to go on reserve and do my hunting uh, for, for women than, than off reserve. So they need to So Don, you're making it... In danger. Don, you just said the phrase, they go hunting for women. Uh, is, the, is, that what, is that how you view this? Is that there's, there's people hunting indigenous women? There's no, it's not how I view this. This is the testimony. Yeah. And this is my experience, my daughter's experience. This is how you're raised. Right. Um, and just recently, you know, we've had a number of incidents here at Six Nations with um, people uh, pulling up in white vans uh, uh, by our schools, and the police have chased them off. So you do not feel safe. The reserve was kind of our safe space from the outside coming in and and it seems as in the last 10 years that those boundaries are blurred now and they're brave enough to come here and, and sit by our schools. So that sense of safety is really gone, even within our own communities now. Wow. Are you, uh, w- with what we're seeing today in, in this inquiry and such, do you get the feeling, Don, that Canadians are more aware now of these issues? Do you think, you know, with, with apologies and such, do you think that we are more aware of this? I think as a social scientist, I look at patterns over time and sociopolitical. There's all kinds of other factors. We're now in the midst of a right-wing 
um, Trump uh, world, Doug Ford just rolled back all the advances we made uh, with Indigenous people and education. And, and so we're well aware of the moment in history that this is being um, released. At the same time, I do think Canadians, um, maybe social media and, and just access to information is easier. The younger generation, for sure, are far more informed, I'd say, than their parents or grandparents. Um, but I worry um, uh, regarding the climate of basically the world right now, where there's this um, movement to kind of undo all the... A lot of divisiveness, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that worries me. But I think we should trust our local institutions. Um, you know, McMaster has a very important role to play and universities need to step up. They need to support their indigenous communities and faculty to be able to do the work um, of, of dealing with issues like genocide. And I, that's often a disconnect. You know, you, you come from a situation in Caledonia and you've got this crowd of hate um, chanting horrible things at you, and then you have to go into the university and teach your course. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a real duality and that we work in. And if we had support um, from our local institutions and leadership, that alone could lift a burden that we uh, usually carry because we're always the ones that have to teach. We're always the ones that have to explain our reality to people who may not want to hear that. And if others picked up that that role and assisted us rather than stepping on us and saying, well, you're not this and you're not doing good over here, but they don't even understand what we're dealing with on a daily basis. Hmm. So I think I'm relying more on the, on the uh, universities policing. I think I was aware and I think Hamilton has really been active in that way. Um, so I think what you're going to see is different responses based on who you put in office. And we need Canadians to vote with their conscience. You don't want to, I mean, genocide isn't going to go away. That will go to the UN. We will be taking these cases forward. You have a young population, and whenever you have 60% that are young, educated, and angry, Mm. and they have every right to be angry. And they're not as passive as my generation was. So, Don, how do you take something, because many governments in the past have tried to resolve this. Jody Wilson-Raybould said, we're managing this situation, we're not solving it. So how do we take what this inquiry and move this forward? You know, beyond the apologies, beyond the education of, of uh, as, as, as you mentioned, I'm sure more Canadians are becoming aware of, how do we, what do we do next? How do we move this forward? Well, I, if, I, if you're looking at a priority, um, to me the priorities would be to remember this was about the families who have suffered in silence, who have have not had justice, and it's about the task force, the national task force set up by Indigenous people um, to be able to open these cases up. We need policing to change their culture and their attitudes towards Indigenous people. We need the RCMP specifically to really go through some training, and we need the court system, which continually denies us justice. We need more judges that are Indigenous. So there's a lot of work that we have to do as Indigenous people, the lateral violence, the the dispossession of land, those things we need allies. 
and and we've always needed our our allies to to kind of say let's do this and let's do it together um that's what we need and if that will if that good faith um isn't shown by canadians i i worry um but i have to have hope and i have to have faith that most of the people i've taught over the last 28 years are good people they just didn't have the facts and once they receive them they wanted to do something to make a difference and and i i believe we have thousands out there similar uh, minded because you don't want to have privilege and power and tout yourself as a great country when you know that what you're standing on is is the bones of our ancestors who suffered hmm. in silence through genocide you you want to be proud so truth has to come before reconciliation and I think that's something that um, a lot of Canadians want, and, and we need to work together. And that comes down to voting. Uh, who you vote in, look what we're dealing with now with Doug Ford. He just canceled literally every Native education, every on-the-ground transformation that was happening, and it's done. Um, so that, that speaks volumes, I, uh, and it, it impacts our everyday lives. So Don I, Martin I, Hill. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, I just hope Canadians are aware that these, their vote really matters um, and they need to vote carefully because the country could go into a, a different direction that might not be good. Don Martin Hill, Associate Professor, Paul R. McPherson, Chair in Indigenous Studies at McMaster University. Don, let's chat again. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. We all remember, uh, man, over the years, um, how this city has changed. Uh, I guess 10, 20, 30 years ago, we were talking about uh, what Hamilton would need to turn the corner and get back to its, uh, its past glory. And, of course, we're seeing that happen now. And uh, a lot of these projects that we were talking about years ago have, have now come to fruition. One was the Royal Connaught Hotel. And, of course, the facade and, and everybody wanted to save that and, and the condo uh, structure that was built in behind it and such. And we remember the presentation center there in the lobby. Uh, condo owners now at the Royal Connaught are frustrated as it's been revealed that those who have purchased the condos have to pay a toll to use the restored lobby. So what is the situation and how did this misunderstanding get to where we are now? Let's bring in Cameron Nolan, president of Condo One at Royal Connaught and is with us now. Cameron, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Uh, what is, uh, talk about the president of Condo One. What is Condo One at the Royal Connaught? Well, everyone that has a memory of the hotel would think of the structure. You know, there's two sort of buildings there. Uh, one was built earlier than the other and I just forget the dates of them, etc., but there's a red brick one and more of a yellow brick one. And so we see it, though, as one structure. Uh, however, well, uh, the original golf. plan of the starts today in the developer Hamilton, was to have a single uh, condominium structure in that building and do additional phases with your on the open land that's associated and of course, with that host of the Scott Radley show. He is However, partway through, they split the that building into two separate no condo and corporations. So Condo One is about 60% of the total occupancy, and Condo Two would be about 40%. You so know, what is your corrupt. role here, Cameron? Here are we you, are, uh, a part of Will a condo association. Will and I just talk representing about the what music we could well, play when, around when golf condominiums to bring you on corporations with, are created, there's a short Rush. interim period before they get their formal the board of directors appointed. So our formal board was appointed in, in early August of last year. 
five directors. And you were, I did, now did you I'm go on fanboy on them? Of two units I did building. I was going and, to, and then I thought uh, I was appointed no, president. He was in the middle of it. So uh, basically, really how this started was in the, in the two initial buildings. Yes, you can, because he's a guitar player. He's not a golfer. People purchased the condos. You didn't see it at the ball. And then that changed later. You know what? Was divided up. Probably made five. Yeah, more or less. So if you imagine, think of any of the various condominium buildings that exist. You know what it is. No, you know what it is. There's a lot. Of one building, they're a standalone building. Well, this is a standalone building. I probably confused it a bit by saying there were two. Actually, historically, in the early 30s, there were two structures that were melded into one. So, more or less, we have one building, but inside that building, there is a separation because you have condo number one and condo number two. So, condo number two was registered this year, and they have their own board of directors. Okay, so is there any difference between living in condo one and condo two? Do they both have the same sort of privileges? Well, as it relates because, to the, uh, the lobby, two or three commonly hours referred to as the Grand Lobby, they essentially the have the, the same time, privileges. They're correct. just drinking so the and same doing drugs work and trying to survive life on the road. Correct. And for him, so it gave him where did the confusion come in here? Because to do again, the day before the, the show, I understand the I'm lobby was probably the same for the sales presentation. You know who else? I was shocked. Did the owners purchase these condos thinking they would be coming and going in and out of the lobby? Yeah. Well, it's a number of factors. So. Uh, the lobby, uh, and for, again, all of us, including myself, who, who remember the Royal Canal um, Hotel, the lobby is such a grand and wonderful and beautiful place to see. Life is a highway till you shank one into the crowd. And so people who well, are coming in and buying their condos that become their suites, their living residence, saw the lobby as part of the project. Now he's going to go into the Golden Girls again. I can just feel it. Some got the detail well, some didn't get it quite so well. So there's a number of owners who think the lobby lobby so, was the part way, of their structure I, that I they own. Now, whether they're right or wrong in that perspective, let's wow, that aside that was their perspective. Now, I heard you whining uh, talking to Bill Kelly about and it's like, you know what it is, I went out this morning and I said that they wouldn't be owning the lobby. And then there are others who are sitting in between saying, well, I knew I wasn't going to own the lobby, but I also did expect that the only thing I'd be able to do by contract is walk in and out. And what can and can the residents do? Can you use that entrance? Do you have to use another entrance? What are you allowed to do yeah, and when. Yeah. So the agreement itself uh, allows all the residents of Condo 1 or Condo 2 to have what the legal term is ingress or egress. So come in, go out. It was windy that's enough, the but, uh, strict nature yeah, of the agreement. You know the agreement it's, it's is a 20-year agreement, so in the end of 20 years, there's nothing in the agreement that indicates what would happen. And there's a fee associated with that that is paid to the owner of the lobby, which is the, uh, I've been on this course. I don't play a lot. So I've why would the developer own the lobby and and I've never and seen the two look as nice as it does right now. And that's, I think gosh, you, what, what's what, the advantage to the having a separate lobby? Now. And you well, I don't know what the developer sees as the advantage. To late July, First of all, they're getting a fee from us, so maybe there's a cash flow or remuneration or income off. Uh, they certainly, cool because they own the lobby, you they get honestly, to control the lobby's uh, I've been use. To Augusta. I'm not and say it's in fact, that agreement limits us. So there are times but when as far as the, the greenest the, places the I've lobby ever seen in my life, it's up used by Augusta others. Right Let's say wow, it's a movie nice. shoot or uh, so did maybe you get a Christmas an autograph party. Or a selfie then our access as owners is limited during the periods of time of those kinds of views. So they can rent out the lobby for So you didn't even do one of those where you were like, you know, holding it up and then you saw like the corner of your head and then golfing in the background? the understanding way in like a dot in the distance. Were aware of this um, when I didn't. They, when As a matter of fact, I didn't. But you know, maybe. Uh, certainly, you know, it's difficult to evaluate that on how many owners felt one way or the other. Whether it's a majority of this 
way or that way. Slowly, so there is sufficient I can finish all my work, uh, get in, do my uh, show, uh, information coming forward to us to indicate that there is some confusion. So who all is there at the pro? More than one or two And in fact, our board was specifically asked. Let me see. I got. I don't have the list. Quite a quite a few hockey players. So for residents, what's the problem that they can't walk into the lobby and then sit down and read for a bit, or this is a bunch of Canadian golfers here and Mackenzie Hughes, part of their living establishment, living arrangements. What can and can't they do? I mean, there's a bunch. Well, they can. They can by the strict terminology. Any sign of Bill Murray yet? Is Bill Murray in there yet? They can walk through the lobby. Wouldn't that be funny? From what the developer did is in understanding that that was probably for people who don't know what a pro am is. I'm assuming most people do, but a pro am is a significant limitation. The developer has given us an undertaking. It's usually a pretty good amount of money for a. You can do more than that. You can sit. You can have a coffee. You can meet Either. people. You so can read a book. The official right. pro do a little bit of work on your computer. Golfers who you can do those pros. things if you so in choose. This one today, that is basically a celebrity is pro a further here. enhancement uh, to the agreement which the developer has I'm given a horrible us, golfer. and yeah. which and the developer has indicated in that getting up there and having to hit with that they could also remove that at any time. So what we're left with in its purest sense is this additional set of things that might be removed. Unlikely they would have a certain level of confidence. And then we've talked about this before because I've been out there, we've been out there broadcasting over the years, and I'll never forget standing on the first tee and even so watching these people that the developers told me watching these people golf. And they that must I know have. Can be taken away. Then it it's only twenty like years. I don't know what's going to happen at the end it's of twenty like years. I went down a bowling alley. Where would you? Where would you enter the down the building after twenty years? Lines of people. Well, that's that's uh, certainly an open-ended question. I mean, one one could presume. Oh yeah. That at work. the end of but twenty years, there'll be a renewal of the agreement because it makes no real sense to think that the lobby isn't. Tee off on the first tee part of the and not take and anyone out is amazing. Stuff. So at a pro am, I don't know. Do they move uh, them back? There's nothing but, in the agreement you know, that assures that would be my biggest fear. Is like under the open. pressure, all of a sudden you shake so one and it goes off and hits someone's dad. The third limitation is that there are it can instances. Happen. Believe me, the lobby how, how they do it. that is, is amazing. Is it that it often? Does it happen? Like, that. will it happen that often uh, where there, it's, it's you know, either rented out for a movie shoot or rented out for a function? Year was it, it was either three or six or 12. I can't remember the last three times it was here. I believe in during the, the period of time from August of, of last year, there were two, maybe three instances, two, I think, for sure. And they never came back. And there might have been a third. So and it was convenient it, you know, because that was going to go on 17 and 18, which were the two most instances. That's crowded. a pretty long period of time. Yeah, right. and, and it was really high pressure. But I think for owners in the building who are questioning this, who at that time, they're saying to themselves, well, he was I wouldn't have anticipated that at all. Yeah. I would have anticipated that this is... You just come and go as you please. Yeah. 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 So where do you think this is going, Cameron? Well, we don't know. There is a request out to from our corporate Condo 1 to have a dialogue. That's incredible. That's a great story. Scott Radley's been with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. Make sure you're listening tonight for all the latest and of course in the Hamilton Spectrum. Back He's at the to Hamilton Golf Country Club today. Thank you, Scott. Have fun. Can we find a way of of not having these kinds of limitations? So, where where the outcome of that is is hard to determine until you sit down and have a discussion and figure out whether whether there's some common interest on the question. It's interesting that the developer even thought to do this. You know, like withhold the lobby almost from the rest of the building. Well, that's certainly a perspective of some owners. There are other owners who say, I kind of anticipated that. Um, what's interesting, too... Wouldn't a good lawyer have told this to all of the prospective condo purchasers when they were doing this deal? 
Great question. Uh, so the the answer, in my opinion, to that is, and it's just my opinion, uh, is that there was enough uncertainty about all of the language around this issue that it could be open to interpretation. So, for example, in in the case of the license, because it's called a license agreement, which allows you the licensing of you walking in and out of the lobby, that document was not in some of the documentation that some of the owners got when they actually you know, closed on their deals. And so for them, they didn't have that available to them. So when you ask the question, shouldn't a lawyer have seen that? Well, there was nothing for the lawyer to see, hmm. to twig the question, Wow. To at least in some cases. So this isn't over yet by any means. Well, it's hard. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, it's early days. Yeah. I, I don't use the term of it being over or not over. I think from the standpoint of there's, there's, there's enough questions being asked of our board that we've been asked to have a discussion. We're going to have that discussion, and we'll see whether that results in, at least I'm hoping we'll have the discussion we've been asking, but we haven't got a date yet. So uh, when that happens, we'll see whether there's more to be, to be done or, or not. Um, this is a very complex matter. Number one and number two, it 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 you know if you want to if you want to get into um, uh, a debate as opposed to everybody has the same interest of of moving forward, if there's a lack of the same interest, well then you're in a different spot, and we'll see that that may be uncomfortable for some. Cameron Nolan has been with us, president of Condo One at Royal Cannot. Uh, condo owners at the Royal Cannot are somewhat frustrated as it's been revealed uh, that those that purchase the condos uh, may have to pay a toll to use the restored lobby. Cameron, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. Have a great day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.